All right, welcome back. Let's do a little bit of a review to see where we are and the overarching argument we've been making. With the pagan philosophers, Aristotle in particular, we found out that human beings are rational animals. And this was important to us because we were concerned with what is our good. We know that that good, which the thing which completes us, is not the same thing as it is for a rabbit, because we're not rabbits, right? And also, we're not angels, so whatever it is that completes angels isn't going to complete us in the same way either. And we don't want to make the error of the little mermaid, trying to change species, right, in order to somehow be happy. The only possible way we're ever going to be happy is as human beings. Serious issues with the little mermaid. All right, so it must be according to who, what we are. What is it that makes us distinctive? And of course, the answer is our rationality. The capacity to use universals to accomplish three fundamental missions. One, morality, and of course, which is aimed at the good. Two, art, which is aimed at the beautiful. And of course, science, which is aimed at the truth. And we have faculties within ourselves, within the human soul, that aim at those three things. The intellect aims at the truth seeks to know it. The will, or the volition, aims at the good, so that our conduct is very good for us. And of course, our desires or appetites are ultimately aimed at the beautiful. Right? And then of course we have an animal side to us, which we talked about, which is aimed at the, stru the good structure and health of the person. Now, we also found out that in order for us to get our intellects to aim at truth, to get our wills to aim at the good, to move our desires toward the beautiful, we require certain habits, good habits, that are called virtues. And we talked about the virtue of the intellect, which is... Anyone remember? What virtue would it be useful for the intellect to possess? Wisdom, very good. And the virtue for the will? Courage. No. Oh. He said that kind of mean. Keep that in mind for the next answer, however, I wish to suggest to you. Mm -hmm. Well, um, motivation is what drives us toward the good. We'll talk a lot about that today, but no, the motivation gets us to the thing, and we need the virtue. What is the virtue? You want your operations of your actions to be good. Those are in accordance with what each thing is owed. And so we call this justice. Like, oh yeah, justice, right, exactly. And then the desires, and here there are two, right, that ultimately help modify and mold our desires. One, we've already heard, courage, which motivates us to do the things that we would desire not to do, right? That's the negative side. And of course, the positive side would be what? What's the other key virtue? Very good, moderation or temperance to keep us from getting out of control because our desires can often lead us to go, say, too many chocolate slices of chocolate cake. After the third or fourth, your desire is still saying more and reason is like, whoa, take it easy, buddy, right? And so we need these four cardinal virtues, the natural heart of the matter, as it were, virtues, that's why we call them cardinal virtues, <coughs> to habituate us and help us to aim at these things. Everyone remember these things? Okay. All of which would be great, except for one problem. 
What is the supreme good for human beings? Loving God. That's the activity, love, and the object is? God. God. So the supreme good for human beings has to be the absolute greatest possible good. And there's nothing greater than the infinite good. And it says there, the only person who is infinitely good is God. And so we started off realizing that God exists and therefore he is absolutely unquestionably the supreme good for human beings. So the problem is this. Does possessing these virtues get us there? No. no. Why? What's the problem? Humanity. What about, what's wrong with being human? Okay. <laughs> well, desires aren't problematic. Desires are natural. Right. Yearnings are natural too. Yeah, that's another word for desires, yeah? But there are two impediments. The first, sin. Because sin is precisely a lack of something that ought to be in us. Hence, we call it being deprived or privation of something that ought to be there. In other words, if you have sin, you're lacking in wisdom, you're lacking in justice, you're lacking in courage and moderation. And if that's the situation, then we're not properly fitted to love God, are we? We don't have the maximum excellence of character. <coughs> the whole point of the faith is to bring us to the point where we're maximally human so that we're fit lovers for God. But if we have lives that are engaged in habits of sin, then how are we supposed to do that? And as we saw last week, right, this is a big problem, right? There's a compelling argument that given our own conduct, given the way we treat other people, that we have this problem of sin. But what if we had never fallen? What if Adam and Eve had said, you know, just not in the mood for fruit today. You know, serpent, it's a compelling argument, but you're suggesting that somehow we should not trust God. We granted, we don't know the purpose of the command. Why shouldn't we eat this fruit? We don't know. But you're telling us it's because God has this ulterior motive. Well, we don't know what it is, but we are not going to buy your argument, so we're not touching it. Would that virtue, yes, you would have agreed that would be an amazing endorsement of virtue for Adam and Eve, then meant that they were able to see God. Or another example, the angels. Remember how the angels had this big choice for themselves too, and a third of them fell and two-thirds did not, like Gabriel and Michael and all the others? Are they able to see God? Simply in virtue of making that right choice? What's the problem? How good is God? Infinitely God, right? How good are we? Fine. How good is our intellect? Finite. Same thing with an angel, yeah? Here's the problem. God is infinitely powerful, infinitely knowing, infinitely good, infinite in every respect. We and every other created being are finite. So how can any created and thus finite intellect raise itself to the point where it's able to behold God as he truly is in himself? Pure, true love. How can we see him as he truly is, as the supreme good? How can we be raised to the point of being able to see him as the perfectly beautiful? This is a major problem. 
And notice, it's not just a problem for fallen human beings. That's why I say there's two impediments. Now, our angelic friends, Michael, our guardian angels, the good ones, they don't have the problem of sin. And if our first parents hadn't fallen, they wouldn't have had the problem of sin either. As we'll come to know more later about Mary, she didn't fall. She doesn't have this problem. Jesus obviously doesn't have this problem. Jesus is the only one, by the way, who doesn't have either impediment <laughs> for reasons that you're probably predicting. Yes. But even if you don't fall, you still need God to do something to raise you up to the level to see him. Okay? So the first impediment is sin. The second impediment is simply being created. We're finite. And thus, God must do something. Okay? God must do something. Whenever God does something beyond nature, we call God's action grace. So God makes available a means of grace, some way for people to embrace him through faith, for even the angels had to have faith, had Adam and Eve, our first parents, made the right choice by trusting God even when they did not understand the reason for the command, that would have been an act of faith. For in the end, every created intellect must exercise faith in God in order to approach him whether you have sin or not. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So all grace operates by the principle of faith. But we are doubly in trouble. Not only are we finite, we have all these sins to deal with. So God had to pull out all the stops to solve our problem. And last week, we saw exactly how he did that by sending his son to die for our sins and provide an alternative path so that where we lacked in justice, Christ's perfect justice suffices. Where we lack in wisdom, Jesus as the living word is the eternal wisdom of God. You see? So therefore, by faith, we can enter into his perfect righteousness and thus be justified. What is the means of grace? It is the act whereby we receive that divine action. And that is, of course, the sacrament of baptism. Okay? And you can see the, the imagery in baptism of the washing away of the sins, of the entering into death with Christ and being raised to newness of life. You see all the rich imagery in there? So if you I don't know if any of you have not been baptized yet, but that will be one of the most critical things for you is to be baptized. That is the beginning. But then remember, baptism is a single moment, but faith is a virtue. And thus we live lives of faith, beginning with baptism as a new birth, like a new little baby. And then we feed on God through the Holy Eucharist. And we'll talk more about how the sacraments do this operation of providing this grace as we go along. Everyone understands so far where we are? Okay, now... If God must do something in order to raise us up to see him, then there must be additional virtues which are directed at God and given to us by God in order for him to take these and add something. And so what we're going to do is we're going to split our virtues into two kinds. These we're going to call the natural or cardinal virtues. And now we're going to talk about the supernatural or as they're called, theological virtues, because theos is the Greek word for God, and these direct us to God so that we can see him as he truly is. And what these virtues do 
is add on to what God already provided to nature. Remember, grace never contradicts nature. Grace fulfills nature. The purpose of the faith is not to make you weird. It's to make you fully human. A lot of religious people think the point of religion is to make you nuts. And if you look through history and the way people live and the way they do things, it's nuts. And if you thought to yourself, that seems weird. You're right. It is weird. <laughs> Definitely weird. That's not the point. The point is to fulfill nature. But how do we do that? By fully loving God. How do we do that? By God's doing something through grace to make a path to himself. And thus the first key virtue is faith. Okay? And so faith operates with wisdom to help us know the truth. What truths? Well, a few weeks ago we talked about this. Right? Truths that are beyond the evidence. Things that we would not know unless God told us. And we talked a few weeks ago about how God provides us for evidence that they're true, not directly, but indirectly, by giving us a prophet or the Son of God himself. And because we know that he's the eternal Son of God, it follows that whatever he says about things for which we have no possible way of knowing, that we can trust him. So when Jesus tells you about the angels and things that happen with the angels, you'd be like, well, I looked in my history books. I looked under A. There's nothing on angels. Of course not, right? We have no knowledge of what happens with the angels unless somebody from the other side tells us. Jesus has given us a few tidbits about the angels. And so we're like, oh, well, that's extremely interesting. Those are additional truths. None of those contradict what we already know according to nature, but they add on to it. And so the faith adds on to what we already have. Remember, we're not against being human. We're not against science, okay? Science aims at the truth. True science is about the pursuit of the truth. And we ought to be absolutely devoted scientists because we want to know the truth. But the same pursuit of the truth that drives us to science drives us to accept the additional truths that science does not have access to directly, those things which God reveals through his son. And so we trust those by faith. Yes? Good review. We all remember this, yeah? Okay. And then trusting the specific truths then leads all different specific consequences. And we'll see how those work, especially when we talk about the sacraments in a few weeks. Okay, now, we know the goal, right? We already know the supreme good, who is a person, it's God, and therefore the activity of the human soul that aims at that is called what? Greatest commandment? Love God. So, we know that love ought to be the ultimate objective. And what we're going to see is an order here. It begins in faith, it's completed in love. And the goal is to turn us into a maximal lovers of God. Because, because God is infinitely good, only he can fully satisfy the human person. But if we love God, it follows we also love all the people and things that God loves. You say, well, doesn't God love everything? Yes. And that's why we love animals. And that's why we love the stars. And that's why we love fish. And we love architecture. We love sculpture, right? If you're attracted by all these extraordinary things, you should be attracted to all those extraordinary things because every one of those is some manifestation of the divine creation. And so we applaud God in all of these things. And also, every single person in this room is a tiny version of the divine essence. You say, how is that possible? Because we were created in God's image. And none of us is alike. 
That's why we believe that every single person is of such immense value. So much so, you might remember a few weeks ago in our readings, Jesus, the good shepherd, goes out and to find the one single lost sheep. Right? That's how committed he is to find that one because every single one of us is uniquely valuable. And so we, in keeping with divine love, we learn to love one another. We can't say, I love God, but I hate my brother. Right? That's impossible. So faith that doesn't lead to love is not genuine at all. Faith is a rejection of our sins and an aiming at God. Everyone understand? No notions of a faith that doesn't entail love. Impossible. But how do we go from faith to love? And that's what we want to talk about today. The third, or second really, theological virtue. Any questions so far? Are we good? All right. Let's pull out the New Testament and turn to Romans again. Romans chapter 8. Do we all the same? Oh, look at that. We got the same one. All right. For those of you who don't haven't memorized your books in order yet, page 131. Well, that's weird. How do I have page 131 three quarters of the way through? Because it restarted somewhere. Fascinating. New Testament. So the second two-thirds in. <laughs> okay. If you found Matthew, Mark, or Luke, keep going. You're doing great. Okay, we all good? All right, let's start. Verse 18, here we go. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Wow, that is some statement to make. You think about your life. No matter how good it's been, there's another side, isn't there? And some of you might say, I don't really use phrases like, no matter how good it's been, because it has not been good. Yeah? And notice what St. Paul says, the sufferings of the present time. When's he writing this? Right? 44 AD? How are things going for the Christians? It's a rough go. So, listen to what St. Paul's saying. The sufferings that human beings endure, really all the sufferings, the whole massive problem of evil and pain are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Now, a lot of people use the problem of evil as an argument to say, how could God possibly exist? Right? If God is real and he loves people, why do all these horrifying things happen? And St. Paul is saying, the sufferings that people appeal to in the problem of evil cannot be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. So that is some shocking claim. If you're shocked, you should be. If you're not shocked, think about it a little bit harder. And start putting the full weights on the scale. The most horrific suffering that you have undergone. The most horrific suffering you have known your neighbors and your friends and your loved ones to have undergone. And then just open the history books. Look at the 20th century. I call it the century of blood. No century in human history has seen so much bloodletting, right? Horror on a shocking scale. 
The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How can St. Paul say that? You say, well, what does he mean when he talks about glory? I'm glad you asked. Yes, that's the question. What does that mean? So let's ask Jesus. Back up a few books. Prior to Acts, there's Rome, uh, prior to Romans, there's Acts, and prior to Acts, there's John. Let's join Jesus in the garden and find out what he has to say about this idea of glory. So you remember, Jesus is in the garden praying before his betrayer comes and turns him over to the um, authorities. And John gives us the full version of what he was saying. So turn to John chapter 17, page 95 in the New Testament portion. We're going to find out exactly what Jesus thinks of glory. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Notice the word glory in there, yeah? Since you have given him power over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, there it is again, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was made. So this is extraordinary. Jesus is impending death. And the first thing he talks to the Father about is glory. A glory which apparently he has been showing the Father the whole time he's been on earth. A glory which he now wants the Father to show to him. And a glory which he apparently had prior to the incarnation. Now, if you look at this, you're going to think to yourself, okay, Glory sounds like the central relation between the members of the Trinity. Right? You're like, that's great, except I don't know what it is yet. And I thought love was the central relation of the members of the Trinity. What happened to love? I thought we said God is love. We don't say God is glory. Yeah? Moreover, you might say that we're sometimes thinking to ourselves that we ought to glorify God. And again, what does that mean? And it kind of creates a difficulty for us, a new conundrum, because if we're supposed to love God and to love a being is to seek the good for him, how can I seek the good for God if he's already there? Right? I mean, my wife and I, we can love one another, and part of that love is to seek a good that one of us might lack. It's easy to understand what love is in that context. But how do you love God? He has no lacks at all. Now, to get at that, and thus, through the back door to get at glory, I want to ask you to imagine a marathon. Let's imagine you're not the runner. You're like, this is the kind of example I like. All right, but your friend is a runner, and they're running. And your job is to encourage and offer support the whole run, right? And what that means is you jump in your car and you race ahead a couple of miles to the next spot and then you're waiting, right? And as, and you're, go, run, run, water, right? And then they run by you, you look both ways, good, and then jump in your car, zip up to the next one. And then, go, 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 yes? Are you not seeking the good for your friend? Yes. Trying to get him to the finish line? Make this great championship run? Yes. All right. So you're loving your friend toward that end. <clears throat> Except then he crosses the finishing line, finishing line and it's over. 
And you're like, well, that's it. My love has just ended. Is that what happens? What happens when they cross the finish line? It evolves. What does that mean? You're not encouraging anymore. You've met them at their aim, and you're still there for them. In what way? What do you do now? You're there for them. What does that mean? Yeah, party time, right? You bring out the booze and the beer and the snacks. They, of course, will throw up. You give them ice packs and th those weird juice packs and, you know what I mean? Get them to the pool. But the point is, you exult in the accomplishment. This is the time to award the medals. Does that mean you've stopped loving because you're no longer seeking a good that the person doesn't have? <coughs> no. Why? Because love is not just seeking a good that the person doesn't have. Remember, love is always directed at the good for another. But if the person has the good already, then you're not seeking it. What are you doing? You are? No, it's there. They got it. You're not enabling anything. You didn't run the race. You're helping build it. You're helping. Nope, it's done. They got there already. You support it all the way. You drove your little car. You yay, 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 go, go, go. Now, nope, you're doing nothing. You're adding nothing. So what is your relationship to this person vis-a-vis -vis the good? You are not doing anything to get them to achieve the good because they've done it. So what are you doing? You are ready? Glorying in a good that has been achieved. You are heaping honors on the person who is worthy because they achieved that objective. That's what your friendship means. It doesn't mean you suddenly don't love the person. Your love goes from seeking a good that they don't have to being filled with praise and thanksgiving and glory for a good that they do have. Do you understand? God is lacking nothing. He lacks no good because he's the infinite good. Thus, we can never love God in the first way of seeking a good that he lacks. Yes? But it doesn't follow that we can't love God because we clearly then love God in the second way. By exulting in a good, not that he finally happened to achieve, right? But a good that he always was, always is, always will be. Because he is the absolutely perfect good. So, glorification is love. Whenever you see the words, we ought to glorify God, understand what that means. That is the love of God. And it follows that what's going on here in John 17 is the love of the members of the Trinity. Look what Jesus is saying. Love the Son, that the Son may love you. Show me your love, Father, as I have shown your love to them. The love that we shared eternally as members of the Holy Trinity. And then look at this. This is the just shocking thing. Look further down. We won't read the whole thing because we don't have quite the time, but look at line hmm, 20. Jesus' last request. You know how the, the dying man gets a last request? Most people say, I want a cigarette <laughs> or a pizza, apparently, according to the TV. Let's look at Jesus' last request. I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that you may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you had sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them 
and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to behold my glory, which you have given me in your love from before the foundation of the world. Jesus' last request is that we will love one another. And his urgent desire is that he may share the eternal love that he has with the Father with us. That's Christ's last request. And that is why we should always be thinking on every issue that comes up in our lives, how does this contribute to my exemplifying divine love? That's his last request, yeah? It's truly amazing. But it also tells us what glory is. Glory is the love of God. How great is the love of God? Back to Romans 8. John, Acts, Romans. Romans 8, 18. Let's go back to that first line where we started. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now we understand. We understand what St. Paul is saying here. We know what glory is now. Glory is the infinite love of God. And Paul is saying something, not just extraordinary, beyond extraordinary. Let's set it up by a diagram. One of those diagrams we were talking about earlier, one of those charts. Okay? Here we go. Scale. All right, so here we go. All suffering How many of you think this is going to put a pretty significant heavy weight on this side of the scale? Yeah? yeah. Yep, definitely. The glory to be revealed in us. Notice what St. Paul says. That's the glory Jesus just talked about, saying, Father, I want to show them my glory. Yeah? And we now know that the glory is the love of God. Now, St. Paul is not saying that the love outweighs the suffering. If that's all he said, that would be extraordinary. But I told you he's saying something beyond extraordinary. Look closely at what he says. It is not worth comparing. Some translations say it cannot be compared. How much suffering is there in the world? It's staggering. It's absolutely mind-blowing, staggering what we do to one another. This is huge, right? So how much glory would there have to be in order not just to outweigh this, but to break the scale? That's what St. Paul is saying. How much? How much would it have to be over here? The only way you can break the scale is if it's infinite. And this is why, as Aristotle guessed, we need a divine invasion. 
The only way to achieve blessedness for human beings is through the gods doing something. But the pagan gods aren't exactly infinitely loving, are they? Nor are they infinitely powerful. So Aristotle knew something was suspect in thinking that virtue was going to do it. But that doesn't deal with the staggering suffering and loss in people's lives, does it? Mm -mm. But our God is not one of those pagan deities. Right? Our God is infinitely good and infinitely powerful. Now, when you have an infinite finger pushing down on this side of the scale, what happens to the scale? It cracks. So I need you to really think hard about what St. Paul is saying here. What God intends to do in virtue of showing us his love is so staggeringly shocking that he is going to maximally fulfill every single one of you. To the point of fully healing and, if necessary, annihilating the most horrific losses that you have suffered and the most horrific deeds that you have done to others. And the trouble is, we don't believe it. See, we think that heaven is just a place of white robes and golden streets and playing the harp and singing. And if that's what it is, it's just not going to cut it, is it? Now, some people be like, well, I like the choir. Well, then you're not in the choir. They're practicing right now. Ah, yes. Not everybody likes to sing, do they? Do you want to float around with little angel wings? I mean, let me ask you something. Would it be human for you to be turned into an angel? No. Is our destiny even heaven? The apostles deny this. St. Peter says the heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed in a violent fire at the end of all time, and God is going to recreate not just the heavens, but what? New earth. New earth. And St. John sees the heavenly city, 1,000 square miles on each side. That's how large it is to show you how huge it is compared to Rome, which, of course, at that time was the city, yeah? It's going to come out of the heavens and land where? On earth. I submit to you that you might be happier if you lived on the planet Earth. And rather that, than that being sacrilegious, let me suggest to you that you were made for planetary existence. You say, how, how do we know that? Well, let's keep reading. St. Paul's about to tell us. Here we go. Ready? For the whole creation, the very Earth we just talked about, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the entire world is under bondage because we, who are supposed to be its kings and queens, are not yet ready to ascend to the throne. Because the creation was subjected to futility. Remember, the same futility we saw in Romans 1, what happens when we enter into sin. The emptiness and loss and meaninglessness. 
The whole creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Hope, there's the virtue. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. So the whole creation is groaning in agony, waiting for the time when human beings finally ascend to their rightful place. Look, deep in the human imagination, deep is the notion that we need a proper king, that we need a proper queen. Now I know, you're like, come on, Taxi, we're Americans. We got rid of King George, the mad king. Yeah, and yet then when Princess Diana and Prince Charles got married, we were all glued to our television sets. And when it turned out he was cheating on her, we were like, that bastard. And the whole thing went what? But we hoped, didn't we? For a little while, we hoped. Yeah? And then Aragorn shows up in the Tolkien books, yeah? You saw the Lord of the Rings, didn't you? Come on. And the whole time, you're just waiting. When is that elvish princess finally going to get together with that king? And finally you saw, for one glimmer, a little bit of time, when a king and a queen were finally united, that were truly king and queen in soul, right? Not just in crown. And what happened? The white city lights up, yeah? The tree blossoms, and the whole world begins to grow. That's what kings are supposed to do. And I'm going to have to tell you right now, if you become Catholic, you're becoming a monarchist. Because we have a king. You say, oh, I thought you were going to say to the Pope. Not a king. He's a steward of the king. The king is coming. He's on his way back. And our toasts ought to be to the return of the king. That's what we long for. The redemption of full monarchy. And when the king returns, he is going to fill us with his glory. And then we are going to be what our first parents should have been. Kings and queens in the full, radiant majesty. What deep down within ourselves, in our literature, and in our music, and in our art, we clearly crave. That is what the rocks, and the trees, and the deer, and the fish, the stars, and the planets are all longing for. For human beings to finally get it together, wake up, and free them in the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know... 22, keep going. We know the whole creation has been groaning with labor pains together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. I mean, listen to what Paul's saying. Your entire life, your entire life is womb. Think back to those days, if not with actual memory, with your imagination. It started off pretty nice. You were in this really nice fluid environment. It was like almost like a perfect bath all the time. Right? You were able to swim around. You had amazing fins. You could do flips, all kinds of maneuvers. And there were some puzzles to you. You heard weird sounds with these funny things, which don't really serve you very well in a watery environment. Right? And these things in front of your face and this thing, it didn't seem to have any real use, right? This thing, which we talk with now, doesn't seem to be doing anything. The tongue, I mean, 
you would think as a fetus, you could look at yourself and say, good God, I have a lot of systems that don't seem to have any proper use. And if you were an Aristotelian fetus, you'd be like, there's something deeply wrong. Everything ought to have a proper function, a proper purpose. What is the meaning of this? Right? But you didn't care too much because the joy of doing backflips couldn't be beaten. And then one day, you started to realize that your environment seemed to be shrinking. Right? Didn't occur to you that you were growing. You also noticed that your fins started to take on the aspect of what we now call digits or fingers, and your ability to work through the water was diminished. You're like, this sucks. And then one day, all hell broke loose. <laughs> Agony. Like nothing you could understand. People talk about the mother's suffering. If you remember, you suffered too. Yeah? And you found yourself jammed down a tiny little canal, your head all stretched out. Right? And you were thinking, this is not good. Right? And then all of a sudden, you burst out into a world, and you opened your eyes, and you breathe. And all of a sudden, you knew what your lungs are for. And you knew what your eyes were for. And you felt the touch of your mother. Right? It all made sense. That is what St. Paul is saying is our reality. We, the entirety of our mortal existence, are the birth pains. What we are in the womb is who we are becoming. And what we are in the womb will be fulfilled. What you are in the womb, you don't turn into something else when you get to the other side. You're a human person in the womb. You're a human person on the other side. I know, shocking implications for doctrines of abortion, yeah? Surprise! You're still a human person. But what it means for us tonight is that God is not going to cheat you. He intends to fulfill every fundamental aspect of your being. He is not a cosmic genie planning to screw you over when you get to the other side. I want you to really think about this. What do you really want? I know what I want. My bucket list is not for this world. I would really like to swim through a nebula. You say, well, that's a big problem. <laughs> I agree. But what if I have... Is nebula swimming a problem for an omnipotent being? No. So, Jeff, are you saying that the evidence points to... Because in my mind, heaven to me has always been a perfect earth, where there's no pain, there's no suffering. There's the perfect just, earth is the perfect earth. It perf yes. It's yes. We're, we're, we are truly... We are we creatures. Are God's image. Yes. And so there's no sin or... I mean, the way he yes. intended Adam and Eve, there was... Not yes. going to be any sin or Correct. Any evil or any death. Absolutely right. Human nature is not the problem. That is the fundamental error of the Calvinists. There are lots of fundamental There's lots of fundamental errors. Human nature is not the problem. Human nature is the solution. If human nature was good enough for God to become man, how could it not be good enough for us? And you've got all these Gnostics running around trying to reject being human on the grounds that somehow being human is suspicious. Being human is not suspicious. 
We should exult in our humanity. Catholics ought to be the greatest human beings on the face of the earth. And we were during the Renaissance. And the Renaissance was the greatest manifestation of human culture the earth has ever seen. And why? Because it was the fulfillment of 1,400 years of the impact of Christianity on Western civilization. When finally, Europe was able to release itself from the shackles of war, the Black Death, Viking raids. I mean, look what those people went through to finally get to the point where they had the time, leisure, and the wealth to fully exhibit the arts and the sciences. And then what did they do with that time? From one city of Florence, one single city, you got Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Galileo. How's this possible? Because the good, the true, the beautiful finally were able to manifest themselves. You want to know what your future is? Look at the Renaissance. That's our future. And you might say, well, I'm not an artist. I really like to go fishing. Good. Because the bass in heaven are really big. <laughs> you say, but wait a minute. I thought you said earth. Good point. It's a new earth, isn't it? It's not like you're not going to be with God, all right? God became man so that he could talk to you in person. So think about it. What's on your bucket list? I'm a home coffee roaster. I love to roast coffee. But I'd really like to have a coffee plantation. But as you can tell, professors have their tastes far exceed the budget. So unfortunately, I do not have my own Costa Rican and Kenyan and Guatemalan and frankly, Sumatran too, to be honest with you. Coffee plantations. This is not a problem. I also love wine. <laughs> you say, you want your own vineyard, don't you? Oh, you got that right. And I've never been able to sail. I want to learn to sail by the stars. And I'm not just talking about a little sailboat. I want an 18th century frigate. <laughs> what do you want? It's not bad. It's good. Becoming Catholic is going from black and white two-dimensionality to full three-dimensional reality in full color. Ours is the fullness of human experience. What we have to offer the world is staggering. How can we offer that? If an omnipotent God. You say, okay, I can see how the goodies can be really good on God's end, but what about the losses? Okay, what about the losses? What if you were the subject of immense harm? What do you need? Go into the deepest part of yourself and ask yourself, what do you need to make that right? And say, well, I'm going to need a major memory erasing system. And I'm going to need my body to not feel the things that it feels. Well, let's see. We believe in the resurrection from the dead. So the body's going to be rather wholly new, isn't it? And do you think that God cannot obliterate memory? that needs obliteration? If that's what you need to be whole, if that's what you need to be complete, do you think God is not going to do that? I'm asking you to dare to believe what we're promised. That's the theological virtue of faith. But when you believe it, this inspires you. 
You start to go beyond mere belief, don't you? You start to believe and it motivates you. You have hope. And hope is a driving power. What about the greatest loss? The greatest loss people talk about, losing a child. So how's God going to make that up? Do you think it's impossible for God to give you your child back and give you a mountaintop somewhere, an ocean cabin? I don't know what you want. And let you rear your child? Is that too hard for an omnipotent being? If you need that, and I can't imagine how you wouldn't, why would God not do that for you? He said, but I thought in heaven they're like adults. Maybe they are to others, but maybe they never were that to you. There's no reason why in heaven your child can't be a child to you and an adult to someone else all at the same time. Because time doesn't work exactly the same way. It's not that there's no time. This is a misnomer. It's better to say there are a lot of times. And again, by heaven, I mean earth. A fully regenerated, renewed earth. And not just earth. The heavens. Right? Why do we have this penchant to go into the heavens and explore? Right? The Starship Enterprise. A five-year mission to explore strange new life to seek out new worlds, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Why did Star Trek have such a magnificent impact and hold on American imagination? We can't get to the stars. We can barely get into the caves. We can finally get to the bottom of the ocean. What's all that stuff for? It's for us. It's our curiosity. It can't be fulfilled in this life, can it? So what's going to happen in the next world? Oh, we're going, baby. <laughs> and I hope some of you will join me on my mission. I got places to go. Now, some of you might think that the world is nice, you know. But I've always kind of wanted to visit Narnia. Okay. Do you think that's a problem for an omnipotent being? Do you think fictional places that are good aren't real? Are you starting to catch on to what we're talking about here? People ask, do pets go to heaven? What's the obvious answer? Yes. yes, if you love them. Well, they're creatures that God made. And they're part of your completion. How could you be complete if the love that you gave to your pet was not redeemed? Every element that you had in this world that was, think of it like this, seeded in charity. You cannot take money with you to the next world. You can't take wealth, status, your inventions. You can't take any of that. The only thing you can take into the next world is love. And every single love that you planted in this world will in the next grow as a tree. Whole forests, whole planets of love. They're all going to bear fruit. That's who God is. You understand? So, do we suffer in this world? Yeah. yeah. Oh, do we suffer. And the more you love, the more you're going to suffer. We're not going to try to pretend that that's not the reality. 
But is it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. And every single loss, God intends more than not just to compensate, but to redeem. And every good that every one of you is a unique combination of, God intends to maximally fulfill who you are forever. There's no boredom. There's no boredom. You would be bored playing hearts. Now, if one of you actually plays the harp, that would be different. Okay, I get the point. But you would be bored. But God didn't make us all harpists. He gave many different gifts, didn't he? And all of us exhibit those different gifts, and he intends to fulfill all of us and all of us to participate forever with the rest of us who are then immortal. We have a kind of infinity at that point, but God is infinitely infinite in all respects. So no matter how much of him you have come to know, no matter how much of him you have come to love, there's an infinite amount still to go. Do you understand? That's why we say it never ends. You're just going to grow and grow and grow. Bigger and bigger and bigger soul. But not just a soul, a body. Because what good is a human being without a body? Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again with a physical body. Then he ascended into heaven with a body. He took it into the Godhead and he promised to come back with a body, which means he's coming back to a physical place. Physicality is not bad. <laughs> Physicality is the point for us. Now, if you're an angel, it's completely different. But we aren't angels. We're human. The angels have their proper ends according to their being. And we'll talk about what the angels really are in some point. I don't know, maybe five, six weeks. But at some point, we will talk about them. We're not angels. Do not be jealous of the angels. You get to drink coffee every morning. <laughs> yeah. You just start to think about the goods that you can experience in this world. And the thanksgiving that you have for those will abound into a richness because of this omnipotence. So, we know the whole creation has been groaning with labor until we ourselves groan inwardly as we await for our adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies, not just our souls. For in this hope we were saved. So Christians enter through faith, in faith, through hope. And this is the hope we've been saved to. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. If you're already there, you don't have hope. You're there. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with it with what? All right. Why are we left in this world? Why don't we just get baptized and God instantaneously take us out? What develops as we hope through struggle? What did St. Paul just say? If we hope what we do not, we wait for it with patience. Another translation, perseverance. And that, you might remember, was some of our cardinal virtues. The purpose of this life is to develop the virtues because in that way we become complete human beings. In that way we become the sorts of beings, men and women who are fitted to know God face to face. 
We can't know God face to face till we have faces. And a lot of us are just chunks of stone. We have to soften up, flesh up, and become real people and learn to love. And as we learn to love, we are becoming fitted to be the lovers of God. That's the purpose. So what are virtues really for? They're to make us fit to know God face to face. That is the supreme end. So what does hope do? Go back to our chart, which is gone now. <laughs> now let's get rid of this and then get rid of that. Faith works through hope to affect love. Hope is your massive motivational factor. Look, normal people that are not in, in the church, they can figure out if they think about it that they ought to be virtue, virtuous and that without courage and moderation and wisdom and justice, they're never going to be happy. Aristotle figured that out. Plato figured that out. Socrates figured that out. Many people have figured this out. And there's a few Americans now and then that even get this right. Rare, but occasional, right? And they're motivated by happiness to want to be good. And they're right. Because without goodness, you'll never be happy. And you can do all those arguments. We did the arguments. We could see that that's true. That's the natural argument. And so by that means, they're motivated to be good. But you, hmm, you have all that. Nothing. We take away nothing from that argument. We add something. For not only do you have wisdom, you have faith. Not only do you have justice, you have hope. And you are motivated by a supernatural virtue that God gave to you at the moment of your baptism and that has been growing, hopefully, hopefully, growing ever since with a confidence and to inspire you to go beyond the requirements of justice all the way to full love. Because we love our enemies. Justice says you give your enemies what they deserve. But God did not give us what we deserved. Right? Right. While we were still sinners, he loved us. He turned enemies into friends by offering us the hand of reconciliation through his son. And so when we look at people that are just nasty people, we think to ourselves, boy, oh, that person should get what's coming to him. And yet, but God loves them. And they could be, just what could they be if they fully reflected the image of God? Right? What could that person be? And so we forgive our enemies in the same way that we have been forgiven. In the same motivation for hope. Hope that might eventually transform that person into the same kind of love that we're participating in. And as you all told me on the first day, almost every one of you was attracted to the church by what? The love of another Catholic. This is not an accident. It is a fire. And when you love people, it catches. So love is the mission. And how do we get there? Through hope. You should be focused on this virtue. If you read St. Paul's letters, hope is everywhere. He's constantly talking about the unbelievable things that await us in the next world. And the question is, will we look at our own selves and use our imaginations and dare to believe what God intends to do? If you will just do that and not be afraid you're going to get cheated, 
Because that's the scary part, right? What if I believe this and it's all for nothing? Well, did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Did he walk on water or not? Did he feed the 5,000 or not? I mean, what else is God supposed to do? He's kind of done it, yeah? At some point, you've got to say, all right, I believe it. Then if you believe, then exercise the hope. Because once you're inspired like this, you're not going to let your own losses hold you back. The holes in your soul that are so severe because of loss, you're going to reach out with love to other people. And your soul's going to grow. And it's going to grow bigger. And those holes, which were so big and legitimate, when, we're, when we suffer losses, they are legitimate losses. But when they are suffered and they're severe, when you love other people, you get bigger and bigger and bigger. And those losses become less and less significant in the whole of who you are. So even in the midst of our own pain, when we reach out in love toward others by having this confidence that God will take care of all those matters, then we can become healed. And we become thankful. And we rise above bitterness and revenge and all these horrifying things. Take a look at line 28. Lisa, how much time do I have? 22. And we know that in everything, God works for the good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those who predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. St. Paul is not saying that if you become a Christian, everything's going to go well for you. No, mm-mm. Jesus said it best, as usual. The servant is not above the master. If they crucify the master, just you wait to see what they're going to do to you. And all of the apostles suffered. Almost all of them were martyred horribly, and St. John, who we think escaped martyrdom, was actually boiled in oil and somehow survived. And boiling in oil, it's got to hurt. You say, well, I don't really think I want to be martyred. You don't have to be martyred to suffer. Just live in the world. Just love people and see what they do. If you've been a parent, you know what it means to suffer. If you've been a spouse, you know what it means to suffer. Because family is love, right? And that means family is suffering in this fallen world. Paul's not saying everything's going to be great. But you say, but what did he say? Read it again. God works for the good to those that love him. Here's the point. God will get you to the end. That's guaranteed. But it may not be by the path that you would desire. In fact, you pretty much guarantee it's not going to be the path that you desire. But it will be the path that molds your desires toward charity. And so you have to have the faith in the midst of all the trouble to remember that God has not lost track of the objective. It may not go the way you wanted. It may not have gone the way you thought best. But in the end, it will get to the ultimate objective. And God will spare nothing to get you to that objective. What is that objective? Well, who is the supreme good? God. Thus, the objective is to see and know him. We Catholics call this the beatific vision. The vision because we finally see God and know him as he truly is in himself. 
St. Paul almost presents it in an erotic way. In the marriage bed, all the clothes were moved. We know even as we are known. And the intimacy of marriage is held up as the highest model that we have for what God intends for us. We are supposed to be lovers of God. He is supposed to be our lover. And therefore, he's going to achieve that end. All the stuff in the way is kind of incidental from his perspective. Think about that. And whoever he justified, he's going to glorify. Now, what ought that to make us do? Well, for one thing, it ought to give us confidence. And look at the confidence that falls out of this line. Take a look at line 31. What should we then say to this? What should we say to this astonishing hope with an omnipotent, all-powerful God who intends to maximally fulfill us in love? What should we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? You say, well, Caesar. Yep. Yep. You say, my boss. Yep. My kid. Maybe. My spouse. I hope not, but possibly. Your best friend who just betrayed you? Yep. But does it hurt? Yeah. Does God still love you? Yeah. Does he still say love anyway and he's still going to bring you to the end? Yeah. So what do you do? Do you give up? No. You don't give up. If God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against you. You have omnipotence on your side. All the powers of the universe aggregated still can't stand up to that. The devils are not going to win. Keep that in mind. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? This is a two-edged sword. He didn't spare his own son. That kind of means he's not going to spare you either. <coughs> so don't go into this without understanding what's the result. If you love other people, you're going to walk into difficulties because <laughs> they're not going to like it. But he gave his son everything. And Christ ascended into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. God put all things into his hand. An Ephesians letter, St. Paul tells us, and you know what Jesus did with it? He gave it to the church. So, everything we need, all things, every single thing necessary to fulfill who you are, God is going to do. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about trying to achieve everything in your bucket list in this life. You can barely experience any element of human being in this life. Right? What's going on in Mongolia? What is it like to be Mongolian? You say, I have no idea. Right. That'd be curious to know, right? You say, yeah, I read National Geographic. Okay, great. But even if you went to Mongolia for a year, would you really know what it's like to be a Mongolian? You see, I'd kind of be curious about that. I'd like to know what it's like to live with a bunch of yaks. Okay. Put that on the list. Just make sure you take a shower afterward. Will he not also give us all things with him? Who will bring any charge against God elect? Is it God who justifies, who condemns? Is it Christ Jesus who died, yea, who was raised from the dead, who was at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us? <clears throat> Who's going to accuse you? Who's going to have the audacity to accuse you in the end? If you stand in Christ's death, if you have had a life transformed by charity, you might say, well, I have done some pretty bad things. Okay. Then you'll make those right, won't you? When you get to the other side, will you not make those right with the people that need that? 
He said, yeah, I did hear about this whole purgatory thing. Ah, now you're catching on. Maybe there's a few rough edges that still need to be worked out. Maybe there's a few people we need to talk to. Not a problem. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Remember, St. Paul, the writer of this, suffered all those things. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Nope. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. St. Paul, the guy who suffered more tribulations and difficulties than any other Christian at his time, says, it's all worth it. They can't put us down. They cannot stop us. I'm charging on. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors of him who loved us. I am sure not death, life, angels, principalities, not things present, not things to come, no power, no height, depth, anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So once God has you, that's it. When, you're, when you are loved by God, You are in a position of maximum confidence. And therefore, you're free to love. You just don't have to worry. If it goes great, great. If it goes badly and you end up in prison with Paul and Silas, okay. You say, but I don't like prison. I, yeah, I can imagine. I don't much like the idea of going to prison either. But if that's where we end up, because we love other people, then is that okay? You're like, man, you're asking a lot. Yeah, I know. But maybe prison isn't the real problem. Maybe the problem is loving your spouse, who you've already concluded really doesn't deserve it. Probably you're right. But you didn't deserve it either, and God loved you. Should you love your spouse? Yeah. yeah. Your wayward child? Yep. Your good friend, who's not so good anymore? You see what I mean? For most of us, prison isn't the problem. It's our neighbor. You feel like, yeah, that's right. Love. Like, but I don't want to love. Okay? That's desire, talking. There's a virtue to help us deal with that. Moderation, courage. Let's remember hope. And let's lay that aside and aim ourselves again to love. St. Paul says it this way. Every opportunity for evil turn into an opportunity for love. So when you're tempted to do something dark... <laughs> Or you just feel dark. Do something loving instead. St. Paul says it like this for people that struggle with theft. Stop stealing, get a job, and then give to others. And you know what? That really kind of undermines your commitment to theft, doesn't it? Charity replaces the vice. And that is why we saw in Romans, charity fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. When you have love, you have all the other virtues. So focus on love. Every opportunity, you know your vulnerabilities. You know the places where you're sub subject to threat. <coughs> where you're vulnerable in those things, cast aside the evil and the darkness and choose love with the confidence through the theological virtue of hope that God will take care of the problems. If somebody needs justice to come to them and they do not repent, don't worry. God's going to take care of that. Does he not say in Romans 13 or 12, one of those, vengeance is mine, I will repay? So do not do it yourself, right? 
But if those people turn around and come to God in love, you're going to be grateful for that. Because those people are going to come to you in the next life too. And they're going to make it right. Everybody makes it right. Because love has to conquer all. Yeah? Okay, questions? You see why we need these theological virtues? These are gifts that God has given us to enable us to maximize and complete ourselves as human beings. And it's a maximization and completeness that brings us to God. When God makes the saint, he does not unmake the man. Sainthood is the completion of humanity. There are not two kinds of Catholics, ordinary old Catholics and then the saints. No. Heaven is full of people just like you. Ordinary men and women who loved their kids, who paid their taxes, who loved their spouse, who struggled and prayed and kept on going and didn't give up. You say, but we don't know their saint so-and-so. Okay. The church doesn't canonize all the saints. Sainthood is for all of us. And what does it mean to be a saint? To be a person completely filled with love. That should be your objective. That's our objective.